All right, is this thing working? It sounds like it is. Good. Carrie, thank you for the prayer, and good to be up in front of everyone opening up God's Word. Exodus chapter 2. Carrie, I like what you said, that it is it was no short order, so if anyone has lunch plans, I suggest canceling them. Um, this, is, this is a very uh, important chapter in Exodus and a very uh, detailed chapter as well. You can see from my slide, uh, the sermon title is God's patient preparation of a deliverer, and we're going to look at five foundational events related to God raising up a deliverer for the nation of the Genesis 3.15 seed. We heard a great message from Pastor Tom about the Genesis 3.15 seed himself this morning, so uh, if, if you weren't in there, make sure you listen to it. But anyways, let's jump in. Exodus chapter 2. In 1954, a young pitcher on the baseball team for the University of Cincinnati was signed by a major league ball club to play in the majors. The scouting report on this pitcher was that he had a, quote, A-plus arm, and the team that signed him had very high hopes for him. However, in his first six years with this major league team, the young man didn't do so well. He had a losing record, he gave up a lot of runs, he walked tons of guys, And one article about him said that he struggled for six years to control his fastball and curve. So for a guy with an A-plus arm and so much promise, this must have been quite a discouragement and rather humiliating. During spring training in 1961, this pitcher received some advice that helped him develop control of his pitches and his arm, and he uh, proceeded to become baseball's most dominant pitcher from 1962 to 1966. Anyone know who I'm talking about? Someone said Koufax. Yes, Sandy Koufax. There you go. Koufax had all the tools to be a great pitcher, that A-plus arm and such, but his success was not immediate. He had to go uh, go through what one author called a six-year storm before he performed as he and the team hoped and believed that he could. Similar to Koufax, as we will see, Moses had all the tools to be the deliverer of the sons of Israel from their Egyptian bondage. But like Koufax, Moses' success was not immediate. He had lessons to learn before he was ready to be used by God as the deliverer of the sons of Israel, the nation through which the Genesis 3.15 seed would come. So as we come to Exodus chapter 2 this morning, the sons of Israel are in bondage in Egypt, and God's promise of the Genesis 3.15 seed and his promise to Abraham of land, descendants, and a blessing were starting to look a little shaky. And the question is, where was God in all of this? How will the sons of Israel be preserved from this bondage so that the Genesis 3.15 seed would actually come forth at some point? And how would God remain faithful to his promises to Abraham? So in Exodus 2, we are going to see God's faithfulness and providence at work as he lays the foundation to deliver the sons of Israel out of Egyptian bondage and to the land promised to Abraham and his descendants. Now, more specifically in Exodus 2, Moses, who is the author, gives us five foundational events related to God raising up a deliverer who will lead the nation out of Egyptian bondage and to the promised land. And those five foundational events are, one, the birth of the future deliverer for the nation of the Genesis 3.15 seed. Second, the adoption of the future deliverer for the nation of the Genesis 3.15 seed. Third, the failures of the future deliverer for the nation of the Genesis 3.15 seed. Fourth, the maturation and humbling for the, of the future deliverer for the nation of the Genesis 3.15 seed. And fifth, foundational event, the prayer for future deliverance by the nation of the Genesis 3.15 seed. What we're going to see is that Exodus 2 is more than just a factual narrative that doesn't mention God until its last three verses. We are going to see God's faithfulness and God's fingerprints all over this chapter. 
So just brief context to catch us up, Exodus 2 really is part of the introduction of the overall book of Exodus. Exodus 1 and 2 are part of this introduction, and the introduction does many things, but two things that it does in particular is, one, it reminds the reader that Exodus is a continuation of the narrative from Genesis, and second, it introduces the reader to the main human character in Exodus, which is Moses himself. One other key point of context we do not want to forget. In Genesis chapter 15, God tells old Abram and barren Sarai that they are going to have a son. And Abraham believed God, or Abram believed God at the time, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then Abram fell asleep. And in Genesis 15, 13, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. So this bondage of the sons of Israel in Egypt is not going to last forever. And in Exodus 1, as Eric taught us last week, a new pharaoh came along who severely oppressed the sons of Israel, the taskmasters, the hard labors, the affliction. However, the more the Egyptians oppressed the sons of Israel, the more the sons of Israel were faithful to the command to be fruitful and multiply. And this caused fear among Pharaoh and dread among the Egyptians. So in response to that, Pharaoh issued what I'm going to call kill order number one, which was to the Hebrew midwives where he said, if any Hebrew women give birth to a son, you are to kill them. It was essentially a command to commit murder. The midwives, however, feared God and they defied Pharaoh's first kill order and they let the newborn Hebrew males live. Well, in response to that, Pharaoh was furious, and he issues kill order number two. Kill order number two is he commanded all his people, everyone under his authority, within his domain, all his people were commanded to cast any newborn Hebrew male son into the Nile River. So it would be like the president issuing a command to all of us to kill any newborn Jewish males. And... That is the situation when we arrive in Exodus chapter 2. And so let's just jump in now, going through our outline, foundational event number one, the birth of the future deliverer for the nation of the Genesis 3.15 seed. And our first subheading in your handout is Moses' birth. Moses' birth. So Following up on Pharaoh's kill order number two, imagine the tension in the reader's mind after hearing that. You end Exodus 1, all newborn Hebrew males are to be cast into the Nile. Well, pick it up in Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi, one of the sons of Israel, went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. That son is a newborn Hebrew male who should be cast into the Nile if they're going to follow Pharaoh's order. But the child's mother saw that he was beautiful, or that word in Hebrew is the same word God used for good when he saw his creation. He saw his creation and pronounced that it was good. So Moses' mother saw the child, saw that he was beautiful or good, and hid him for three months. Hebrews 11:23, the Hall of Faith chapter in Hebrews says, "By faith Moses when he was born was hidden for 3 months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They were not afraid of Pharaoh's second kill order." And that is really referring to Moses' parents' faith, not Moses' faith there. And so they defied that kill order, they hid the child for 3 months. Another important cross-reference in this section of Exodus is Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is delivering a sermon to the Sanhedrin, and he's doing that. He was filled with the Spirit, and of course, Luke 
wrote Acts chapter 7 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So you have this sort of almost doubly inspired account in Acts chapter 7 where Stephen in Acts 7.20 tells us that the child that was born to Moses' parents was, quote, lovely in the sight of God. Lovely in the sight of God. So that is Moses' birth. Now under foundational event number one, second subpoint, Moses' ark. Moses' ark, and this is verse 3 of Exodus chapter 2. But when she, the mother, could hide him, the child, no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it. Well, the reality is it seems like very newborn babies don't often make a ton of noise, but once they maybe get to about three or four months old, they start getting more animated, their crying gets louder, and perhaps that's why... Moses' mother could hide him no longer. So what she did in faith to try to preserve this child's life is she made him, the, the NASB says, she got him a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch to make it waterproof. Well, that word for basket, the, the translation of that Hebrew word basket may not be the best interpretation there. That Hebrew word It's the same word that Moses, who also wrote Genesis, used for ark in Genesis 6 through 9, referring to Noah's ark. So he refers, he uses that same Hebrew word, Genesis 6 through 9, for Noah's ark, and he uses that word here in Exodus 2 for this basket. That word is not used anywhere else in the entire Old Testament. So this is a very intentional word choice on Moses' part, and we have to ask why. What, what is the significance of this reference to the ark from Genesis 6 through 9? And how is that really applied here in Exodus chapter 2? Well, if you wanted to stay here till 2 or 3 o'clock, we could uh, really go through many scriptures and many things to figure this out. But a couple key points. In 1 Peter 3.20, he, Peter references Noah's ark as something that brought eight people, quote, safely through the water, safely through the water. So Noah's ark was a vessel to preserve Noah and his family. And, and remember, Noah is in the line of the Genesis 3.15 seed. So to preserve the family through which the Genesis 3.15 seed would come by bringing them safely through the water. So Moses' use of ark shows the reader that the ark is a vessel to preserve life, and in his case, to preserve the one who is going to be the deliverer of the nation through which the Genesis 3.15 seed would come. So again, keeping hope alive. I mean, remember what was going on in Genesis 6-9. through God was angry with all the sin and rebellion in the world, and he judged everybody and killed them except for eight people. So this is, again, you have the Israelites in Egypt, and we're not sure exactly what's going to happen here. Yes, there's a prophecy about 400 years of of oppression, but things are looking pretty grim. So Moses' reference here to this ark may have been to give some hope that there is going to be physical preservation of the line and the nation through which the Genesis 315 seed would come. But the ark is also a picture. Hebrews 11.7 says Noah, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. The salvation of his household. So Noah's ark was a vessel for deliverance from the judgment of God, which took place during the flood. Everybody else was killed in judgment for their sin, except for these eight people and the animals, of course. So the ark is also a picture of deliverance from sin and judgment. And of course, we know that that is ultimately accomplished through the blood of the Genesis 3.15 seed who we heard about in main service this morning, Jesus Christ. So Moses' use of the ark for this little basket or chest that he was placed in pictures hope for the preservation of the family or nation of the Genesis 3.15 seed and hope for deliverance from sin and judgment through the Genesis 3.15 seed. 
So Moses' mother puts Moses, a three-month-old baby, into this ark, sets it among the reeds. My little picture up there in the corner is intended to kind of picture it. I wish I could zoom in. But those are reeds. They're these tall, pretty strong plants that kind of shoot straight up, often on the banks of rivers. So Moses' mother places this ark among the reeds at the bank of the Nile in hope by faith somehow that the baby's life would be preserved. So that's Mo- Moses' ark. Now let's look at third subpoint under foundational event number one, Moses' watchful sister. Exodus 2.4, his sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. This is a reference to Miriam, Moses' older sister, although she's not named here. And it really seems like some kind of a plan was in the works. You know, she's standing watch. The mother seems to have, in a sense, strategically placed that ark somewhere. She didn't just, you know, kind of push it out in the river and, you know, hope she saw it again sometime. She put it, you know, those reeds are strong. If the, if the ark was in there, maybe it got jostled around a little bit, but it might have been sort of held in that area. So Moses' sister's paying attention to this. She's watching. Moses' watchful sister. So that's the birth of the future deliverer for the nation of the Genesis 315 seed. Let's move on to foundational event number two, the adoption of the future deliverer for the nation of the Genesis 315 seed. And we'll pick it up in Exodus chapter two, verse five. Now, this is a scene change. It's not an con- exact continuation from 2-4, but it's pr- it's the, the location is the same. And verse 5 tells us the daughter of Pharaoh, the daughter of the man who issued the second kill order, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens alongside the Nile. So the daughter of Pharaoh comes down to the Nile and her maidens were with her probably in a way to stand guard so she had a little privacy if you will when she bathed and it seems that Moses family may have known that this may have been a favorite spot of Pharaoh's daughter to come bathe in the Nile and in God's providence she went to bathe near where Moses family lived so Pharaoh's daughter goes to bathe in the Nile, second half of verse 5, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she, her maid, brought it to Pharaoh's daughter. So Pharaoh's daughter finds the ark. Pharaoh's daughter, I should have given you the subheading, Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses. She finds the ark here in Exodus 2.5. Second subpoint, Pharaoh's daughter spares Moses. Pharaoh's daughter spares Moses. Verse 6, when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. Well, picture this. It's back to my original, I'll zip through it. There you go. That's what we're talking about there. Pharaoh's daughter opens the ark and sees the child crying. Moses is crying. Verse 6, and she had pity on him. And said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So whether by some form of appearance or perhaps circumcision, Pharaoh's daughter immediately recognized that this was a Hebrew baby, a Hebrew male baby. Uh Uh-oh, what about daddy's uh, order? How is this going to turn out? Well, the text tells us that she had pity on him. That word for pity, it's our traditional meaning that we think of with compassion, but in Hebrew, it can also mean to spare, to spare. So the question is, was Pharaoh's daughter going to spare Moses' life from her father's kill order? Well, the action gets pretty hot and furious here. Verse 7, then his sister, Moses' sister, jumps in. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I... Shall I call, go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? So Miriam just jumps into the middle of this scene. It's like they were waiting for this basket to be found, perhaps by Pharaoh's daughter. She jumps in, says, do you want me to go get a Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter, verse 8, said to her, go. So the girl, Miriam, went and called the child's mother. She went and got her mother, Moses' mother. So Moses' mother now shows up on the scene and talk about 
God's providentially working to spare Moses' life. So next subpoint is Pharaoh's daughter adopts Moses. Pharaoh's daughter adopts Moses. Continue on in verse 9. Pharaoh's daughter says, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. This is basically like an adoption almost, but it's, it's sort of like an adoption to actually take place in the future. Pharaoh's daughter claims ownership over Moses, but tells Moses' mother to nurse the child for me, and Moses' mother is going to get paid to nurse her own child. That's not a bad deal. Well, but think about it. There's a little factual caveat here. Do we really think that Pharaoh's daughter could have taken a newborn Hebrew baby, a Hebrew male baby home to the palace where her dad was? No. So this is God's providence working big time to preserve Moses' life, to put in Pharaoh's daughter's heart this pity for that child. And it's also a blessing to Moses' parents. Their child is alive their child's going to be able to live with them. And she is going, Moses' mother is going to nurse that child. And typically in that culture, at that time, children were not weaned sometimes until they were three or four years old. So by that time, Moses' parents may have had an opportunity. They were Levites. They were faithful. They may have had an opportunity to tell Moses who they were, who he was. He was a son of Israel. We believe in Yahweh, the true and living God. So this is, this is a phenomenal story of God's providence to preserve Moses' life and have him learn. In, that's sanctified imagination, by the way, but have him learn a little bit about who he was. So end of verse 9, the woman, Moses' mother, took the child and nursed him. Verse 10, Exodus 2.10, the child grew. This is a reference to the child growing to the point of where they would be weaned, about three or four years old, give or take. And verse 10 continues, then she, Moses' mother, brought him, the child Moses, to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she, Pharaoh's daughter, named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. So Moses was adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh to be her son. <laughs> Fascinating story. So we have the birth of the future deliverer for the nation of the Genesis 3.15 seed. Foundational event number two is the adoption of the future deliverer. Foundational event number three, the failures of the future deliverer for the nation of the Genesis 3.15 seed. So between verses 10 and 11 in Exodus chapter 2, we have a gap of about 35 years. How do we know this? Well, in Acts chapter 7 verse 22, which I mentioned previously about Acts 7 with Stephen, Stephen tells the Sanhedrin in Acts 7.22, quote, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. So Moses is smart, Moses is powerful, Moses was probably trained in Egyptian, you know, military or hand fighting techniques and so forth. Moses was raised as an Egyptian male. And Stephen goes on in Acts 7.23 to say when he was approaching the age of 40, hence the 35-year gap here, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. That's Acts 7.23. If you want to flip over to Hebrews 11 again, Hebrews 11.24. Hebrews 11.24 says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So by the time Moses was about 40, putting this all together, Moses had renounced his sonship with Pharaoh's daughter. He viewed himself as a son of Israel. He was giving up the riches and the pleasures of being essentially a prince. 
in Egypt. And as it says from uh, Stephen in Acts 7.23, he wants to go see what's going on with his brethren, the sons of Israel. So with that background and education and training and now loyalty to his people, not loyalty to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's daughter, Moses is looking like a very good candidate to be the deliverer for the sons of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Not so fast. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Notice as he mentions his brethren twice there to kind of signify that loyalty. So he goes to see what's going on with his people. He sees the Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Moses had great concern for his people. Moses' concern for his people here in Exodus 2.11. And we continue. Sorry, I'm a little slow with the outline. Second subpoint under foundational number three, Moses' overzealous passion. Moses' overzealous passion. Exodus 2, verse 12. So he, looked, so he sees the Egyptian beating his Hebrew brother when he goes out and looks on him as they're laboring. And Moses interjects himself into that situation. And he looks this way, then he looks that way. He doesn't see anyone. The coast is clear. Exodus 2.12, he struck down, that is killed, the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses was very passionate to deliver justice for his people, and he literally took matters into his own hands, and he killed the Egyptian and then buried the evidence. I'm a lawyer. Burying evidence is not a good thing to do. One commentator, Douglas Stewart, in his commentary on Exodus says, quote, this was his first attempt at delivering his people, acting alone and in secret, and relying on his own strength and wisdom. And although it failed miserably, it certainly shows the strength of Moses' sentiments for his people. Moses' strong passion for justice then has him interject himself into another situation. Pick it up in Exodus 2.13. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other, And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he, the offender, said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Whoa, wait a second. Someone saw. The coast wasn't clear when I took that guy out yesterday. Hmm. Exodus 2.14, then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. Moses is overcome by fear. He realizes his actions were witnessed. His overzealous passion got him in trouble. So what does he do? Subpoint three, Moses' flight to Midian. Verse 15 of Exodus 2 When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian and sat down by a well or settled by a well. So there is a map of the general region. Egypt is kind of in the upper left. I circled lower Egypt. That's the tributaries of the Nile and Goshen. You remember that's where Joseph originally settled the sons of Israel. Well, if you start working southeast in the lower right corner, you see Midian written sideways. That's basically the Arabian Peninsula. Some commentators also believe Midian may have covered a southeastern portion of the Sinai Peninsula as well. Promised land, Canaan, way up to the north there. So I just want to kind of give you some bearings. Moses fled Egypt and went all the way to Midian. That's not like 20 miles. That's through barren desert, quite a distance. But anyways, well, like Sandy Koufax's early years, 
things were not going as Moses may have thought or hoped in terms of his passion for justice and prospect of being a deliverer. And when we think about the failures of the future deliverer for the nation of the Genesis 3.15 seed, failure number one, he killed somebody. Failure number two, he buried the evidence. Failure number three, with his two Hebrew brothers fighting, he unilaterally appointed himself as some kind of judge or authority over them. And failure number four, there does not appear to be any evidence, at least here in the scripture, that Moses prayed about any of this, that he sought God's will about any of this, that he sought wise counsel about any of this. Basically, Moses failed here because he was operating in the flesh. Do you ever wonder why perhaps you make plans and sometimes they do not turn out how you want or they don't come to fruition or perhaps they even just crash and burn? Well, we can ask ourselves some questions. Did we check our plans against the scriptures? Did we seek wise counsel about our plans? Did we pray about our plans? Did we wait for the Lord to take the lead in making our plans come to a reality, or maybe not, but wait for the Lord? Let's ask ourselves those questions. Sometimes we just want to bulldoze through things. We think we have a great idea, and we're just going to go for it. And it doesn't work out, and we get frustrated. Well, think about those things. Anyways, back to our story. In considering the failures of the future deliverer for the nation of the Genesis 3.15 seed, We see the importance of following God's plans and God's timing and not just taking matters into our own hands. So Moses now, completely humiliated, tail between his legs, flees to Midian. What happens next? Foundational event number four, the maturation and humbling of the future deliverer for the nation of the Genesis 3.15 seed. Big scene change now. We go from... Egypt to the land of Midian, Moses is going to introduce us to a series of new characters, some of whom will actually recur in subsequent portions of Exodus. So subpoint A under foundational event number four, Moses sees, S-E-E-S, Moses sees the seven Midianite daughters challenged at the well. So verse 16 starts off, now the priest of Midian So the priest of Midian, whose name we'll see is Ruel, or later on in Exodus we'll see it's Jethro. Jethro may be a title, or Ruel may be a title, but he goes by Ruel and Jethro. We are not told what or who he was a priest for. Was it a pagan god, or was he like Melchizedek, where he's a priest of the Most High God? Likely a pagan god, because it appears that Jethro is converted later in Exodus in chapter 18. So the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and the narrative picks up. These daughters go to the well. Remember, Moses settles at the well in Midian. It's a barren desert out there. It's not like there's wells everywhere. So he settles at the well, and these seven, again, God's providence, these seven Midianite daughters go to the well where Moses happened to settle, and they go there to draw water to water their father's flock, verse 16. And when they arrived to draw water, verse 17 tells us, then the shepherds came and drove them away. They pushed them aside. They basically said, we're drawing our water first. It's pretty rude, actually. They just strong-armed the seven daughters of the priest out of the way. So Moses sees the seven Midianite daughters challenged at the well. Second point, Moses delivers the seven Midianite daughters challenged at the well. Moses delivers the seven Midianite daughters challenged at the well. He sees the shepherds mistreating these these women. In second half of verse 17, Moses stood up. Remember, he sat down at the well. May not be that it meant he literally sat there the whole time, but he sat down at the well, and now he stood up and helped them, the seven daughters, and watered their flock. So, Moses again sees a wrong taking place. This is the third time in Exodus chapter 2 he interjects himself into some dispute 
But this time, instead of using his fists, instead of trying to lord it over people, he just helps the seven daughters of the priest of Midian. Verse 18, when they, the daughters, came to Ruel, their father, and he said, why have you come back so soon today? They reply in verse 19, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. Well, this is kind of interesting. These daughters, these Midianite daughters, pegged Moses for an Egyptian. Maybe he fled Egypt so fast, he still had his Egyptian garb on. Or maybe the way he spoke gave him away as an Egyptian or someone raised in Egypt. So it says, an Egyptian, key word here, look at verse 19, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. In his sense of justice, Moses prevented the shepherds from pushing those ladies aside at the well. And then with Moses' help, they were able to get the water first. So the reason their father was surprised that they came home so soon was because normally the shepherds would push him out of the way. They'd take the water first, then do their thing. But this time they got the water first and they were done more quickly. Moses not only helped them get the water first and their father noticed that earlier return, but the text also tells us that Moses helped them. or They recount that Moses helped them by watering the flock. That is a big difference from the results that Moses' overzealous passion produced with the Egyptian beating the Hebrew and with his Hebrew brothers. It certainly seems like something had changed in Moses. There's some humility there. There's some gentleness there. There's some patience there. There's some wisdom there. God is using the humiliation and failures that Moses experienced back in Egypt and now his exile to Midian to sanctify Moses, to humble Moses, to get Moses ready for leadership. Godly leadership, not fleshly leadership. So that's Moses delivering the seven Midianite daughters challenged at the well. Sadly, verse 20, Moses, next point, Moses forgotten by the seven Midianite daughters challenged at the well. So the daughters return home quickly and they explain why. And their dad almost blows up at him. Verse 20, he's like, okay, where is he then? Why is it that you have left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. Hospitality was a big deal in Middle Eastern desert culture. And it looks like the daughters just forgot. They blew it. And, and just they, they were maybe so shocked that they didn't have to deal with the shepherds as they normally did. But bottom line is Moses was forgotten by the seven Midianite daughters challenged at the well. So continuing on, Moses lives in exile. Moses lives in exile with the family of the seven Midianite daughters. Pick it up in verse 21. It seems that the daughters actually went back and got him and they showed him hospitality. There may be a bit of a time gap between chapter 20, uh, verse 20 and verse 21. Picking up in verse 21, Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave, and he, the father of the daughters, gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Then she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The reason I think there's a little time gap between verses 20 and 21 is you don't just invite someone in to show them hospitality and they live and give them your daughter all in, you know, one fell swoop. I mean, it's, I'm sure there was a little time lag there. So Moses is now married, though. He, he's living with this family of the priest of Midian and his seven daughters. The priest gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. They're married. She gives birth to a son, and he names the son Gershom, which means a sojourner in a foreign land or a stranger in a strange land. He's far from home. He's far from his people. 
And really, this section of the narrative ends here. And by the end of verse 22, the end of that paragraph, Moses seems a bit maybe melancholy. Things are not turning out the way he envisioned them. He wanted to be the crusader for justice, the deliverer, when he renounced being the son of Pharaoh's daughter and turned his back on all the pleasures and riches of Egypt. He's nowhere close to being the deliverer of his people. He's out in the middle of nowhere. He's estranged from his people. He's tending sheep and he's not really doing a whole heck of a lot. Kyle and Dalich commentators note that Moses' naming of his first son Gershom suggests that, quote, his life in Midian was a banishment and a school of bitter humiliation. So to conclude the Moses-focused portion of Exodus chapter 2 and look forward really to chapter 3 and beyond, there's a quote that's been attributed to D.L. Moody that I think is really applicable to Moses, but perhaps it's applicable to some of us as well. D.L. Moody is, is said to have said, quote, Moses spent his first 40 years thinking he was somebody. He spent his second 40 years learning he was a nobody. He spent his third 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. Is God using circumstances in your life maybe to show you that if you're not a nobody, maybe you're not a somebody? Is maybe he's trying to humble us and prepare us for something bigger as we will see he is doing with Moses. So we have our foundational event number one is the birth of the future deliverer for the nation of the Genesis 315 seed. We have foundational event number two, the adoption of the future deliverer. Foundational event number three, the failures of the future deliverer. Foundational event number four, the maturation and humbling of the future deliverer for the nation of the Genesis 315 seed. Foundational event number five, the prayer for future deliverance by the nation of the Genesis 315 seed. We have a significant transition here in the book of Exodus. There's a big scene change. We go from Moses and Midian, and we are going back to the sons of Israel in Egypt. And the transition here is also we are now leaving the introduction of Exodus. And this is a transition to signal that God is going to begin the process of deliverance. And to signal that transition, Moses, in this last portion of Exodus 2, records a prayer by the sons of Israel and God hearing that prayer. Subpoint number one, the prayer of the sons of Israel, verse 23. Well, in Exodus, sorry, in Acts 7.30, Stephen notes that Moses was in Midian for about 40 years. And if you flop back over to Exodus 2.23, it says, Now it came about in the course of those many days, those many days, Moses 40 years in Midian, that the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, the one who issued the kill order, that Pharaoh died. That Pharaoh died. And the narrative then shifts back to the sons of Israel, and we see the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning. Look at the sons of Israel. Look at their actions here. They sighed because of the bondage. They cried out. They cried for help because of the bondage. And they groaned. Each of those actions is a different word in Hebrew, perhaps to manifest the depth of their suffering and anguish and the intensity of their pleas. The word sighed, we all know what a sigh is, or a groan, but it's an indication of grief or even physical distress. There can be a component of mourning to it. To cry out, I think we all understand what that is. The sons of Israel cried out a lot in the book of Judges when they were doing that cycle of disobedience. And then it says they cried for help. They cried to get attention. And then they groaned, which is indicative of oppression or pain. 
the sons of Israel were suffering tremendously while in bondage in Egypt. And this is the first act of faith that we observe from them, crying out to the Lord for relief from this bondage. And end of verse 23, their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. That's the first mention of God explicitly in this chapter. God had been working behind the scenes, as we said, multiple times, his providence. But now God is about to be front and center and wait until next week. So that's the prayer of the sons of Israel. They sighed, they cried out, they cried for help, and they groaned because of their bondage. Now we have second subpoint: God's response to the prayer of the sons of Israel. God had quite a reaction. Let's look, verse 24. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. God heard their groaning. He hears the prayers of his people. Our God hears the prayers of his people. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the first mention of the Abrahamic covenant, being its ongoing vitality being affirmed. This is the first mention of that in Exodus. And it says God remembered his covenant. It's not like God has a memory problem. It's one commentator says he's remembering for the purpose of taking action. It's, he's, he's remembering for the purpose of taking action. God is about to do something here. He remembers his covenant because he is going to take action. And God saw the sons of Israel. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. He knows everything that's going on with them. He knows everything that's going on with all of us. And God took notice of them. That word for took notice is interesting. That's a Hebrew word that's often translated to know, K-N-O-W. And it can be to know in a sense of an intimate knowing, like Adam knew Eve and they gave birth. So an intimate knowing. God is far more than just superficially aware of what is going on with the sons of Israel. He is far more than superficially aware of what is going on with us. He is intimately aware of what is going on with the sons of Israel in bondage in Egypt, and he is intimately aware of what is going on in our lives, down to the hairs on our heads. And God being the faithful and good God that he is, he is starting to answer that prayer, and in the coming weeks, we will see that he is going to answer that prayer big time as a means for preserving the nation of the Genesis 3.15 seed. God knows what is going on with his people, including you, Christian. We just need to cry out to God with our needs, our trials, our difficulties, our challenges, our hopes, our cares, our sorrows, our troubles. And as he was with the sons of Israel, if you have a relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ, God tells us, Call on me in the day of trouble, and I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He tells us to cast all our anxiety on him. The sons of Israel did that, finally. Do you do that when you have troubles and difficulties and trials? Or as the hymn says, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Now, if there's anyone in the room today that does not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, God is under no obligation to hear or answer your prayers unless 
you repent of your sins and place your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then God will gladly hear your prayers. And certainly if it's his will, he will answer your prayers. My prayer for you today, if you do not know Jesus Christ, is that you repent and place your faith in him today. So that is the prayer for the future deliverance by the nation. It was the nation that prayed. The prayer for future deliverance by the nation of the Genesis 3.15 seed. So there's some take-home lessons and questions on the handout, but just let me say this in conclusion. Moses had all the tools in terms of talent, training, education, and whatnot to be the leader and deliverer of the nation through which the Genesis 3.15 seed would come, deliver them out of Egypt and lead them to the promised land. But like Sandy Koufax, whose pitching talents needed refining before he became the great and dominant pitcher that he and the Dodgers wanted him to be, Moses' character and Moses' passion for justice needed refining and sanctifying and humbling before he would become the leader and deliverer that he wanted to be and the leader and deliverer that God wanted him to be. You know, God, by grace and providence, worked on Moses for 40-plus years in Exodus chapter 2, 40-plus years of his adult life. And Moses would ultimately, as we'll see, Moses will ultimately become the deliverer that God wants and will use him to be. But this humbling of Moses was a big part of this sojourn in Midian. And I'll say this, if Moses was not sufficiently humbled by being exiled in the desert for 40 years, come back next week because he's going to see something that is going to humble him big time. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and Lord, Exodus chapter 2 is just such a neat window, the 81-year chapter into a life that you are going to use so mightily as you see the failure, Moses self-recording his own failures, and you starting to work on him, Lord, to turn him into the person you want and need him to be, to be the deliverer of the people through whom your son would come. Lord, we should just be amazed at your providence working in all these circumstances, even unbelievers like Pharaoh's daughter. We should be amazed at your patience working in the hearts of your people like Moses so patiently in the desert for so many years growing him. And we should certainly be amazed, Lord, and praise you for your grace that you hear our prayers like you did with the sons of Israel. God, you are so good. We are just so grateful that you are so patient and so merciful and so gracious with us. As we learned this morning, it's not even that we don't deserve any of it. We go the complete opposite direction. And, and Lord, we only deserve punishment, but by your grace, through Jesus Christ and the redemption and the forgiveness that we have through his blood, Lord, you hear our prayers and, and you, are, you are just so good to us, Lord. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. We love you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.